0: Welcome to Philosophy and Faith, where our goal is to help you navigate your intellectual and spiritual journey, especially in regards to topics like God, faith and doubt, meaning and purpose, and more. I'm Nathan Beeson.
1: And I'm Daniel Jepson. And together we discuss the big questions that humans have wrestled with for thousands of years. We're glad you can join us.
0: Well, today we're going to take a quick break from our four World Views discussion to talk about faith, reason, and doubt. And I think that this will be a really, really good pause because it just seems like this is really kind of applicable and relevant thing. I think a lot of us struggle with faith and doubt and that kind of thing. And it's a journey, not something that we just receive perfect faith and have no longer doubts exactly like that. So Daniel, I'm grateful that you're here to help us discuss and think about some of these things. So...
1: Yeah. And I like the way you put that, that faith is a journey, not something we either have or we don't have. I think we'll probably do this as a two-parter. We'll see how long it goes. Okay. About the idea of doubts and faith and reason. And you were mentioning as we were talking before that you were thinking of a friend who was going through a lot of intellectual doubts or struggles there.
0: Yeah, I think it's common being in my 20s, I have had numerous conversations with people about the hot button term of deconstruction and what that looks like, thinking about previously held beliefs and questioning them and saying, you know, I don't know if I still believe those or not. And it's kind of a challenging experience for people and glad that I can help walk through that with others. But I know it's just in our culture, that's the term like doubt right. or is doubt. Uh, maybe goes beyond doubt to actually say, no, I'm, I'm actually going to move away from some of these previously held beliefs and that kind of thing. But yeah, it's definitely a, definitely a common conversation I'm having with people around me.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I think it's always been an issue. We used to call it losing faith or something, but now you can start seeing your faith as a more common term. And I think it's kind of helpful. Anyway, let's dive into this.
0: So just as we begin, I'd love to hear if you can go ahead and define some terms for us as we're talking about faith. What does that mean? What does doubt mean? Yeah, can you help us understand those? Sure. One of the things that can
1: be frustrating when you're trying to communicate with people outside the faith or sometimes even inside the faith is the issue of definition because we're using definitions as the church tradition based upon the Bible has used them, hopefully, whereas other people may be using a different definition with a different meaning behind that. And that's true in regard to faith, I think. So let's make sure we define that as a believer is using that term because that's what we're talking about, whether we have a believing faith or not, right?
0: Yeah, I, I feel like the common definition I hear is believing something without seeing.
1: Right. I've, I've heard people say, yes, yeah, believing something without reason. Yeah, believing without reason or, yeah. Yeah, that's very common. And I think it's mistaken, because in, in a couple ways, both parts of that are mistaken. Believing something without reason. Both parts, the believing something, and then without reason. Let's take the first of those. Yeah. So the Greek word here doesn't exactly mean belief or believing in something. The Greek word is pistis, and the verb form of that then is going to be pisteo. And pistis has three main ideas. Okay. Belief trust, or faithfulness. It can be any one of those that's the main idea in a biblical passage. But for the most part, the idea of trust is the central idea of that word. So it's not primarily believing ideas, it's the idea of trusting person. So it's not mainly about believing ideas, but trusting a person. Now that doesn't mean there's no cognitive element to it, it just means that's not the heart of
0: it. So is it more active than cognitive? I mean, in in regards of the trust and faithfulness dimensions of that word? Right. It's active.
1: You can't have a, a passive faith in the biblical sense. But again, it's not so much focused on ideas as a person, the person of Christ in this particular case.
0: Okay. Yeah. So I'm beginning to see how that's already different right. than just <laughs> believing something. Because I mean, scripture talks about even the demons believing. Exactly. So does that mean that the demons have faith in God? I mean, is that the, I mean, it says the demons believe and they shudder, so. So
1: the word can have that idea of just believing in idea. And that's what James is talking about when he says even the demons believe in God. But for the most part, especially when Paul uses the term or when Jesus uses the term, it has more the idea of trust. Okay,
0: gotcha. Yeah, and I can see how there's definitely overlap. I mean, if I believe, if you tell me you're going to do something and I believe you, then I trust that you're going to carry that thing out.
1: Exactly. And again, you can't trust in Christ unless you believe certain things about him. But that's not the main focus. The main focus is on a relational trust with
0: a person. Yeah, that's already beginning to be helpful, that it's trusting in a person. And that does include certain things about them, but it's not exclusively, hey, just believe in these 10 theses about who Jesus is.
1: And it has the idea that trust is also a choice. It's a choice based upon reason, but it's something that you either do or don't do. That also points us away from this idea that faith is just something you believe because it makes sense to you or not at the moment.
0: Gotcha. So that is the second part of the definition that you're kind of critiquing. You said faith is believing something without reason. And so you say believing is not just adhering to a certain set of truth claims about that, but actually trust in a person and then The second part of that, without reason. So now you're you're talking about kind of the interplay between belief and reason.
1: Right. The definition of faith as believing something without reason is what I'm arguing against here. Right. Both on biblical as well as, as, I think, logical grounds. So let's talk about that. Second Corinthians 5.17 is a great verse. It talks about this. It says, we walk by faith, not sight. Now, there's a couple of things that this brings out we walk by faith, not sight. First of all, the normal Christian walk is by faith or trust. So again, that's an active thing that you do. It's a walk. And Paul uses that term when he wants to stress that something is continuous and it's something you do, it's a part of who you are. It's not a one-time momentary decision that I believe some intellectual truth. It's a walk of trust. And the second thing we see here, notice how he defines the opposite. He doesn't say we walk by faith or trust, not not reason, but he says not sight. And that's a very different word. That's a very different word with a different meaning in the scriptures. Let me give you an example of how this comes into play. So I remember one time I was talking about this idea of faith, and I, I held my hand out with a clenched fist, and I asked people I was talking to, all right, do you believe that I have a $20 bill in this hand? And a lot of people weren't sure how to respond to that, of course, but one person, I think they felt like if they said yes, that I would give them the 20. I didn't think that, <laughs> but anyway, but they said, yes, I believe that. And then I opened up my hand and showed them, yes, there was a $20 bill in there. And then I made the statement, I have just destroyed your faith. The point I was trying to make, and I, I think he got the point, was that when you have immediate certainty or evidence of something beyond dispute, you no longer have faith. You have knowledge or you have sight. That's what Paul is saying is the opposite of faith, is this certainty by immediate um, sense experience that something is, is true. So when Paul's talking about this, he's not saying we don't have reasons for what we believe. We do. Paul had reasons. He had direct experience. According to his own testimony, he had this dramatic religious experience where he saw a vision of Christ himself. He also had all the reasoning of the Old Testament that he relied on again and again to show that Christ was who he said he was. When he talked to the Greeks, say in Acts 17, he relied on human reasoning and logic. He wasn't opposed to reason, but he recognized that reason at best can get you to believe in a knowledge. But when you're talking about trusting a person, especially in this context, you're going to have to choose to trust, even though you don't have certainty. And that is what he is talking about.
0: Yeah. So it seems like the the Christian walk is one that is going to necessarily have, it's going to necessarily need faith. Yes. My, My question that I've been thinking a lot about is, should Christians want sight? Should they pursue sight? I mean, To me, that makes it easier. (laughs) So should we pursue sight? Should we want that?
1: I would say only to the degree that God knows that we need it in our particular case. But probably it's not a goal that we should pursue for itself. And let me give you a couple of reasons for that. So when I look at faith as described in the New Testament, especially, well, the whole Bible. It is not an act of the intellect alone, but of the will. So if it's forced upon you by sight or certainty, it's no longer an act of the will, but only an act of the intellect.
0: But hmm.
1: like, do you need faith right now to believe I'm here? No. No, because you have sight, you have knowledge. Yeah. It's not something you can choose to disbelieve unless you choose to disregard the, the idea that your senses can bring you truth at all, which I think is a nonsensical and unsustainable <laughs> position. Yeah. Yeah. All right, so you don't have faith because you have sight. Yeah. In my understanding, faith is a combination of will and reasoning. You cannot have true faith without both of those elements involved. You have to have reason. There has to be a reason for you to believe. But you have to recognize, as Augustine said, that our reasoning and our rationality has limits. Therefore, I have to also make a choice to believe what I can't prove. So, no, I don't think we should pursue sight. I mentioned two reasons. Second reason is when you look at Scripture, it doesn't seem to convey the idea that when people had direct sight of God's involvement and God's activity, that it was spiritually healthy for them. Mm. Like, if you look at the time period where God spoke dramatically in the Exodus and the wilderness wandering, God showed himself very dramatically. He told them what to do. They saw miracles left and right. And yet that generation fell away from God because it warped their sense of trust in a person. And I won't go into all the dynamics because I'm not sure how they work, but it was a generation after that who saw very few of those miracles that proved faithful to God. And in the same way, the people of Elijah's and Elisha's time who saw many miracles of God did not turn back to God because of that. All that to say, no, I don't think you should pursue the idea of sight. I believe that god will provide enough reasoning or evidence for you to make the choice without violating your reasoning or your conscience but that's all we need
0: so to grow in our spiritual formation is to deepen our faith which is a trusting act in god are definitely not opposed to reason but recognizing the limits of reason and also as an act of our volition yes and in, in the good times as well as the difficult Right. That's trusting in Jesus as a person to, to be who he is, to be who he says he is, and to trust that he can do what he says he can do, and what he's shown himself to already do.
1: Right. The analogy I use in my class sometimes, very often there's at least one person who is engaged or maybe they're in a relationship where they hope to be engaged, sometimes just recently got married. So I say to that person, it's, it's great if there's someone who's already engaged. And I say, okay, let's think about this scenario. You're engaged to this person, so think of that person in your mind. And then one week before the wedding, or even two days before the wedding, you get an anonymous note that says your fiancé has been cheating on you for the past year. And they list two or three people they've been cheating with. Now, they don't give any proof of that. It's not what they have, pictures or audio tapes or something. It's an accusation. Now, what do you do there? Do you believe that letter? Do you bring it to your fiancé say in this scenario, they completely deny it. They're angry and upset just the way that you would be if that letter was directed at you. In other words, you look at their response and it's not guilt, it's indignation that they were even accused of this. Now, it's two days before the wedding. Do you go through with it? I usually make this more pointed. If you believed in those accusations, would you go ahead with the wedding? No, no way. No, I wouldn't either, right? Yeah. And I haven't had any student in my class yet say, yes, I'll right, go ahead and do it. They all yeah. say that. And that's that's rational, right? But at the same time, if you just have that, and you don't have that knowledge one way or another, who sent it, are you going to go ahead at the wedding? It's two days from now. You have got 48 hours to decide. What do you do? That's where you make a faith decision to trust in a person, even though you don't have certainty. Yeah, Because the only way you can have certainty that they haven't been cheating on you is if you videotape them 24-7, which which would be really creepy and very impractical, right? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And the other thing this gets across is if you had that certainty, if you videotape them 24-7, ultimately, when you're before that altar, you would be saying yes to an idea that they had been faithful to you rather than a person. yeah so that's what i'm trying to get across here you have reasons to believe that person you have spent the last year two years three years however long with them you have seen the kind of person that they are you have learned to trust their word so you are not believing them without reason you're just choosing to believe them and trust them without certainty
0: without sight yeah and it seems to me to be better to be able to trust your spouse based on their character if you have evidence that she hasn't cheated that's not the same as having confidence in her character that she is a faithful person right And I would rather have confidence that's a good point. that she's a faithful person. I think that that goes the same way with our relationship to God Kn- knowing that his character is good and being able to trust in that is a really powerful thing even when things don't go super well here right because mm-hmm. that can give us the the ballast to brave the tempest. <laughs>
1: Wow, very poetic. But yeah, that's a a good way of thinking of that. So to sum up that part there, I would say a good definition of faith, a working definition, is choosing to believe what you have reason to believe is true, but without certainty. Or more specifically, when we're talking about religious faith or saving faith, at least for Christians, saving faith is choosing to trust and follow Christ without certainty, without sight. Yeah.
0: Now, some of us don't like the idea of not having certainty. Yeah, I get that.
1: But we do that all the time. I had about a skin cancer this year, and some of it had metastasized into a a few lymph nodes. That was just uh, about six months ago, so I'm still kind of in treatment for that. But I remember, you know, you, you notice a spot in your skin that's you feel like, oh, this is different. So I go to a dermatologist, right? And then the dermatologist sends me to a skin cancer specialist, and then she examines it, sends the stuff out to the lab. She interprets the results, tells me I need to have this very expensive surgery procedure. I go to the hospital for that surgery procedure. I follow all the things they tell me. I submit myself to anesthesia. So I'm completely unconscious while people with knives hover all around me, right? And then, you know, you go through the whole thing. Then you go to the pharmacy. You get medicines that you've never verified or tested. There are a million ways that you don't have certainty. I have never checked the credentials of those doctors, like Dr. Meyer. I've never called IU School of Medicine to verify that she has her diploma, like it says, on her wall. I have to trust in this situation. The pharmacy, I can't prove the pharmacy gave me the right medicines. Yeah. Whether by ill will or simple mistake. He could be giving me the wrong medicines. Mm-hmm. I could doubt things every step of the way. But part of the human condition is that because of our lack of comprehensive knowledge, we have to trust, even in important decisions.
0: Yeah, that's a that's a really good I mean, I'm just thinking about that situation. Like there are a million different variables that along the way you could say, no, nah, I don't I don't believe it. Right. I mean the diagnosis. the the treatment options, you don't have to take your medicine right? because you don't know what's in it. Yeah, exactly. So you're saying that based on our limited knowledge as humans, we have to trust people even though we don't have certainty about them. Yes. Even though
1: we don't have certainty about their qualifications, their character, or their goodwill toward us.
0: And so you're making the point that it's similar, trusting in God.
1: Obviously, trusting God has higher stakes, but you know, surgery and skin cancer are pretty high stakes. Yeah. So I'm making the point that the limits of our human knowledge necessitate this kind of trust.
0: And I mean, you still had reason to trust your doctors. Exactly. You had good. Re- if her diploma on the wall said "flunked IU School of Health," you probably you'd probably be less likely to go back. Sure. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I mean, you could do internet searches on the person. You can you can make value judgments based upon what you know of people by the time you get to a certain age. Hopefully you can- Buy
0: a microscope, check out the medicine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: Anyway, I think we're running that analogy into the ground. Yes, yes. Um, so, saving faith is choosing to trust and follow Christ without certainty. Now, there's one more part that I really want to get across in this that kind of, I think, illustrates this a bit. And I, I'm calling this the line versus the quadrant. And here's what I mean. I'm going to borrow from one of our atheist friends, Richard Dawkins. And he proposed that when we think of belief in God or not, we're being too simplistic and too bipolar in that. And instead of a yes-no, on-off type of uh, switch, as it were, he proposes like a seven-fold scale of your certainty of belief in God. So, seven, if you're a seven, you absolutely know without any doubts at all that God exists. If you're at a six, you're fairly convinced of that, but you recognize it's possible to be mistaken. If you're at a five, you believe that there are better reasons for believing in God than not. But again, you could be mistaken. If you're at a four, you are completely neutral. You look at the evidence and say, yeah, I could go either way. I really don't know. If you're at a three, then you're saying you believe the arguments against God's existence are greater than those four. But again, you could be very well mistaken. If you're at a two, that's a little bit stronger version. You're almost certain there is no God. It's possible, but you're almost certain. And then if you're at a one, no, it's impossible God exists. It's a logical impossibility or some other reason. It just could not be the case at all.
0: Yeah. And I, I think that's already helpful because even the way that we talk about faith, like I have faith or she lost the faith or I want to share the faith. It just seems like it's something that you either give or receive a deposit of. Yes. And that's so unhelpful because in different seasons of life, I can be at different numbers. Exactly. I can be today four or five and tomorrow a six. That's a really helpful scale there.
1: So I'll put you on the spot here. At this stage right now today, where are you on that scale?
0: Um... What's exactly in the middle? Four. Four? I'd say I'm a um, probably a six.
1: Okay. Probably a six. I'd say that's where I am too.
0: I would say that there are days when I'm reading scripture and I'm lower than that. I'm like, wait a second, wait a second, wait a second. Then he rose from the dead. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, wait. I'm actually claiming to believe that this guy rose from the dead. Or like this Sunday preaching on Jesus feeding 5,000 men. So probably women and children there with five loaves and two fish. And I'm doing the math there. One loaf of bread for 5,000 people. That means that loaf of bread has to feed 1,000 people. And just all the questions in my mind, like, okay, they, surely they had more than five loaves. Two fish for 5,000 people. That's one piece of fish for 2,500 people. So I, I don't know. It's some of these where it, these stories are wild and kind of absurd and that sort of thing that I think anybody who's reading them should probably pause and back up for a second. Yeah,
1: it's interesting that you talked about reading scripture sometimes brings you from a six to maybe a five or something. <laughs> but And you know what? I will admit the same thing. Really? Yes. But I will also say that more often when I'm reading scripture, I go to a higher level because I see some beautiful truth there that I'm like, ah, there is no way that, um, a mere human came up with that. Yeah. Do you have that experience as well? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And there have been times where I'll read some persuasive argument and maybe I'll go from a six to a five or it maybe been a four or like, you know, you face some tragedy like my wife and I have faced in our past with our son and. Yeah, that can take a hit. Yeah. So again, you're not set at one point. And what I'm trying to develop here is the idea that you will naturally go up and down that scale a little bit. And it is a scale. It's not uh, a switch, whether you have faith or you don't. And then if you lose faith, you can never regain it or something like that.
0: So I'm not a bad person if my faith fluctuates.
1: No, I think it's normal. That's, thank you. (laughs) No, no shame. No, that's just the human condition. Yeah. But let's take that idea and we'll take it one step further though. Okay. Okay, so picture that seven bolts. That's okay all right. So or a piece of paper in front of you. So you've got on a horizontal line, so that'd be your x axis, as yeah. it were. And then right down the middle of that, right at the four, draw this vertical line as well. And it's got the same seven points. Seven at the top, and then you go down. So at the bottom You would be at a 1. Now, this would be a good time to ask, what is that? Okay, so what's the (laughs) y-axis scale? There you go. So the y-axis would be what I would call commitment. And here's where I'm going. I believe that what's important is not where you are in the scale as much as your, your commitment level, regardless of where you are on the horizontal scale.
0: So this kind of brings us back to the beginning definition where you talk about faith as an act of volition and not just intellectual intent. Exactly. So is that is that you or is that Dawkins as well? That's the, me. The y-axis. Okay. So I'll, I'll add a third dimension. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. we've got on the x-axis the, the, the faith or the certainty, is what you said. And then on the y-axis there, you've got commitment. Right. So, let me give you
1: just a brief example, like Mother Teresa of Calcutta. Is there anyone who you would give a higher level of commitment to that in our time period, at least? No, probably not. So, we're going to label her as a seven. Seven is, you are giving your life fully to Christ and serving the world through Christ. Let me define that more fully. When I talk about commitment in the Christian belief, I'm primarily saying four things. Number one, you're committed to draw close to God through Christ. Number two, you're committed to follow Christ in the sense of thinking like him and doing what he does. And then third, you are embracing Christ's community. This isn't a solo project, it's a group project, and God desires it that way. Are you uh, talking
0: about the church there? Yes, for okay. the most
1: part. Okay. And then fourth, you are committed to partnering with Christ in blessing the world, seeking reconciliation, seeking justice and justification for people, seeking to make the world all that it should be by promoting the good news, but also by showing God's kindness and care into this world, both for people and for creation itself. All right, so I'm not going to delve into that. I'm just trying to explain what I mean by the word commitment. Okay. So we're going to give Mother Teresa a, a seven here. A six would be someone who is seeking these things for the most part. Sometimes they lapse. A five is someone who's kind of following christ in this way they're committed to christ a little bit they're doing some things and then a three a two a one would just ramp down the commitment yeah to a one is someone who really is doing nothing at all they are actually doing nothing because of their commitment for christ
0: so that's that would be the i was reading uh Pew Research has a category now of people who are called non-practicing Christians. So they're the ones who say, yeah, I believe, I, I would claim the identity of Christian without practicing. Yes. I think they define it as going to church once or twice a year.
1: Yeah. This whole quadrant, you would call, this whole quadrant of the bottom right corner, as it were, you call high certainty but low commitment. You could call them non-practicing Christians or nominal Christians, okay, yeah. Christians in name alone. All right, so that would be in that lower right quadrant. I'm calling that quadrant three there. Look at this in four quadrants based upon the two perpendicular lines. One is low certainty but high commitment. Quadrant two on the top right is high certainty and high commitment. Quadrant three on the bottom right is high certainty but low commitment. And then quadrant four on the bottom left would be low certainty, low commitment. Can you kind of conceptualize that? Is that clear?
0: Yeah, that's helpful. If I was at home listening, I'd probably break out a a piece of paper or on my phone go scribble on my notes. Because this is actually really helpful because it seems, and maybe this is where you're going with this, that commitment, faith as commitment is what's important here. Even though our certainty can fluctuate, that the goal is to have to walk by faith, so to persist and to pursue, even though at times knowing that the human condition is fluctuation with certainty. Is is that right? Where you're Yeah, going?
1: pretty much. And along with this, look at the x-axis, the horizontal scale, the scale of certainty. Where would you have to be to be able to actually be a committed Christian or to do the things of following Christ?
0: That's a good question. Um, I would maybe say like two or three and above
1: i think i would agree with you
0: i think that if you're at a one like i don't know i don't i don't think so yeah although maybe if you have seasons of five or six or seven and then something happens mm-hmm. and you drop down that far i think that maybe the community of people around you that you're already plugged into you talk about being part of the church or or some of your practices i could see reading the psalms or something i could see even if your certainty really 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 dropped down low hmm some of those particular things really helping carry that out as long as you stay connected to the community of faith and that kind of thing. Right. I don't know. What do you think?
1: I, I think I kind of agree with you. I don't think you could sustain being a one and being a committed a believer, Christ follower, be like an atheist Christian. Conceptually, I could understand maybe some people could argue for that, but practically, I don't think you could do it. But my point here is, I think you could be a two or a three and still be a very committed believer and follower of Jesus Christ. Yeah. I think it may be more difficult in certain times at a two. I think you might have more struggles, but perhaps, perhaps your faith choices then become even more valuable in Hmm. deeper act of faith in a sense. Yeah.
0: Wow. That's a beautiful thing.
1: Yeah. And I won't go to the wall on that, that it's, it's more virtuous to be at a two and still make the right faith decisions or the right faith choices or the right Christ commitment, but I wonder about that.
0: Wow. Wow. Yeah. It, it, it certainly seems like the commitment there is more meaningful because it does not come as naturally or easily. Yeah, I guess that's what I'm getting it. Yeah. That's, again, really helpful because there are days dipping below that line for sure. That's a human thing. And I think in those spaces, it can be really helpful to search out and that kind of thing and... Go read some blog posts from your favorite apologists or that kind of thing.
1: Well, that will bring us into the part two of this is how do we handle our intellectual doubt? Okay, cool. So, um,
0: should we break now and then get back into it here in a minute?
1: Yeah, let's do that. Let's make it a kind of a separate episode because I think conceptually it works a little bit differently. First part is kind of defining that. The second part is more practical. How do you deal with times of doubt and uncertainty, seemingly lack of faith? So We'll talk about that.
0: So can you summarize just where we've gone throughout these past 35 minutes or so? Sure.
1: So the main idea is to help us understand that faith is not simply believing something that you know isn't true or that you don't have any reason for it. Faith, rather, is choosing to trust a person even without intellectual certainty about all the details. Even when you have doubts, you could have doubts at times that Jesus existed or that he taught the things he did or that he was resurrected. But that doesn't mean you don't have a level of faith in your life that you can exercise and make a choice on. So that's where I'm going with this.
0: Cool. Well, let's break, and then we'll get into some more of the practicality of it. Thanks so much for listening. If you like what you hear, click follow or subscribe, depending on your platform. Check the notification bell so you're up to date with new episodes and leave us a review. Until next time.